Welcome to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFauve. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. We are professional screenwriters. We've worked together as a team and separately. We've worked on studio and indie films, live action and animation, from my work on Inside Out and Captain Marvel. To my work in Pixar's story department on Up, Brave, and Inside Out. We are here to share our insights on the craft of screenwriting and also the life. How to not only survive the ups and downs, but thrive. We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. We are so glad to have you here. Today we are thrilled to be chatting with one of Hollywood's most well-known and most well-respected screenwriters, John August. Known for sharply written indies like Go and The Nines, to beloved studio juggernauts like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Aladdin, John's work is united by quick wit, richly emotional characters, and engaging storytelling in scripts that have grossed over $2.4 billion at the box office. He's also the screenwriting podfather, paving the way for our show with his podcast, Script Notes, co-hosted with Emmy-winning writer Craig Mazin. John is joining us today to help us unpack the dynamics of world building in your writing, as well as lots of other stuff I'm sure we're going to get into because we've got his big brain with us and we got to pick that brain. So we're very excited. Um, but before we get to that, before we get to the interview part. So welcome, John. I should say. Uh, that, I'm, I'm so excited to be here. So, it's, it's, <laughs> it's so nice is to, to be cheating on my podcast or another podcast. Feels, <laughs> it's great to not have to host. I love it. <laughs> So uh, before we get to the interview, let's get to our week or what we like to call adventures in screenwriting. My week was uh, really good. Uh, I'm in development on a project. And this morning we delivered uh, our story area slash outline to the network, which is very exciting. So I'm going to pretend that didn't happen so that I can be prepared for notes next week, hopefully. Enjoy and, it. Um, Enjoy the weekend. Enjoy yes. it before the notes arrive. And uh, I came up with a new idea for a new project. Um, and uh, we've been talking a lot about this, like, sort of negative committee, this committee I have in my head that's telling me all the lies. So I spent some time journaling, which I suck at generally because I'm always, uh, anytime I write, I assume someone will read it. So journaling is really tough for me. But I uh, dug into who that committee is and how it came to be, and I gave it a job so that I, and I have a little sticky note on my desk that I can look at to remind me to- uh, You want to tell us your committee's job? Uh, my committee's job, it's kind of personal and vulnerable. Is, okay, well, we don't need to. No, it's okay. I mean, you know me, whatever. I'll be <laughs> like, here's why I'm not going to talk about that, but here's how I'm going to talk about it. Um, uh, it's to um, protect my little girl self. To okay. go hang out with her and let her know that uh, she's loved and just as she is. And see, now I'm getting all emotional. So that uh, she's taken care of so I don't have to worry about her. I so think that that's beautiful. That's I can I can move on as a my creative self and I know that she's uh, being cared. And my, uh, my committee is called the Bitchy Mommy Wife, which is this uh, service sort of... Uh, place I decided that I needed to be, right? The sort of mommy wife and the, right. the sort of can be bitchy when she needs to be bitchy and sort of that's all about service. That's a that's a role I gave myself. <clears throat> so um, I'm separating from that. I'm giving her another job and she's very happy. Good. The, the multi-headed bitchy mommy wife committee. Uh, so <clears throat> which I think, sorry, I of course I have a frog in my throat, um, which is um, how I'm able to come up with a new idea, I think. So, yeah, uh, which is it is about, interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. 
And you'll be shocked to know that my new idea is about female anger. Oh my God. Oh is my it God. Already? It's so not on brand. I know. Um, so I had a, you know, an up and down week. Monday was a terrible day for me. Monday was one of those days where I'm like, I just rolled around in the doom and the dread of it. I didn't even text Meg to let her know that I was struggling because I, I knew what she would say, which was get your butt in the chair and write. Instead, I just, you know, curled up in bed and, and had a doom day. Uh, so but then I sort of have gotten my shit together. Everybody needs a doom day. <laughs> yes. So, um, so that was my week. Uh, John. Lovely. John, how was your week? My week was okay. So I'm trying to think of it from the lens of writing John versus sort of other projects I'm in, involved with. But writing John got some stuff done. Um, not a huge amount, but let's try to unpack sort of what got done and why it got done. So I'm writing a feature. I'm, I'm sort of well past the midpoint. I'm in the area of the script that uh, my friend Aline Brosh McKenna refers to as the Rocky Shoals, yeah. um, which is that, sp- that space before the, the end of the second act where um, characters are doing things and it's, it's where a lot of the problems sort of come out and, and where as a writer, you often face a lot of doubt. Like, is this even the right movie? Like, does anyone care? Um, you know, can this even be solved? Am I trying to solve the wrong problems? Am I, am I trying to be clever for the sake of being clever? Sort of all those things. And you can go back and read the the first 60 pages and like, well, these are great. And and then you still are left with that nagging feeling like, yeah, they're great, but they're in the service of the wrong movie. Like you just, it, it, <clears throat> there's no the, real- The doom monster shows up, The, yes. the doom monster doom. shows up. So a thing about my process is I write out of sequence and I've always written out of sequence is that I will write- in general, whatever scene appeals to me right at that moment. And so it's a way to sort of stop myself from getting stuck. And mm. just if I don't know how to write a scene, I'll just jump ahead and write some other things. I try to write the last 30 pages of a script pretty early on, especially those last 10 pages, to make sure that I have the energy and, and enthusiasm to um, that, you know, that, that zeal you have at the beginning of a project, that I still have that zeal when I'm writing those last 10 pages so they don't get sloppy and gross and sort of and weird. Um, I haven't done that on this project yet, but this project is different in that I had a really detailed outline going into it, which is not my normal process. And some of that change has been good. It, it makes me feel confident that the thing can work, but it's still surprising to me at this moment where like, I know it should work because I know it works in an outline and I still kind of feel like the script underneath my fingers isn't quite what I want it to be. So mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. the struggle I'm having right now. But I would say more important than anything is like, I just haven't gotten a lot written this week. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, you know, I try to get three pages a day done, um, you know, a thousand words, 2000 words done. When I've done books, a thousand words is the minimum I set for myself. And just I haven't moved it forward as much as I need to sort of move it forward. And I know that it's going to be hard to, I know I can finish it because I've, I've finished so many scripts. I know this is part of the process, but it's still frustrating when you encounter it every time. Every time. And so do you, if you don't outline every time, what do you normally do? Just jump into the random scene work or? Yeah, just jump into the random scene work. I, I write what sort of appeals to me to write because I won't generally start a movie without having a good sense of of where it's going and, and sort of how it, it gets there. But the same way that we shoot movies out of sequence, I find it's great sometimes to write movies out of sequence and really, you know so much more about the characters, you know, and what they need, where they need to be at on page 90, then you do it at page, you know, 14. Right. And so therefore I might not overwrite those early scenes because I know I'm going to get to that stuff later on. 
Well, it's so fun because people get stuck in Act One because it's so fun to write Act One. Oh, of course, it's just the best. <laughs> and by the time you get to like ninety, you're like, whatever, whatever, and then it yes. ends. Something uh, happens, and uh, then it uh, ends. I kind of just did that. Um, so I love that you write it out of order to, and you you write those late pages uh, at the end. I have so many other questions, but we'll wait for the interview. Yeah. I will do my week super quick. Um, this week um, was a lot of notes and waiting for notes, and um, so. My thought this week was, oh, you know, writing also, because on this show, we talk a lot about the emotional toll writing can mm-hmm. take or the doubts and that people aren't alone in that. And, uh, but I also want to remind people that it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed <laughs> to be, we don't, let's not use that word. It, Wait, it, what? We want it to be fun. That writing can be fun. Because when I talk to people about what I wrote that I'm getting notes on or waiting to get notes on, I'm realizing, you know, I had a lot of fun writing this. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I didn't have all those, the real Rocky Shoals and the Doom and all that showed up too. But I also actually had fun. And I think you can tell in the project that mm-hmm. that we had fun. We had a lot of fun. And I think it's in there. And so I think I want to encourage people to, when you're writing out of sequence or whatever, have fun with it. Like, don't get so like tight with it about what it has to be that you're not actually enjoying the writing. Um, and, you know, so much first drafts is where I am. So much of a first draft is laying out every dish on the table. You know what I mean? There's the turkey and the dressing and the gravy, but they're all equally sized because your brain is just trying to lump it out there to see, you know, what about this world? What if we go here? What if we do that? This is, would be totally fucked up. Right. Blah, blah, blah. And so of course the notes coming back are going to be like, lots of fun stuff, but where's the main character or like, what's that core bottom track in the middle of all of these fun ideas. And I'm, I'm okay with that because that's what a first draft is. A first draft is we uh, trying a lot of stuff on, right? Let's, let's try on this character. Now, maybe we have too many characters. Maybe we have to start collapsing some of these. Maybe we have too many worlds. Let's start collapsing some of these, but you can't be upset. Maybe I'm telling myself this right now. By that kind of note, because that is the purpose of a first draft, too, is to lay a lot of dishes on the table to see what you like and what your main character needs. So I'm kind of seeing that this week. And then, um, you know, <laughs> this is now to talk about the this is one small thing on the on the emotional work of it. You know, I asked my son wants to write do a short film. And so I said to him, if you guys remember last week, I said I wanted 10 different versions of the short and they're, they're two pages. It's going to be no dialogue, two page short. I wanted 10 different versions. He gave me six and the differences were literally like a couple of sentences. And I was like, dude, this is not what I'm talking about. Like, it, I think it's so great for him at 17 to learn this, that that's not a different version. It feels like a different version because the dad went left instead of right. But I want to know what happened when he went right. And I also start, tried to show him that so much of his conflict happened off screen. Yeah. The big events happened off screen. And I just want to remind in terms of our emerging writers, this is very normal when you start writing that a lot of your conflict happens off screen. A lot of the big events start happening off screen. You're jumping things and you're really afraid to do really different versions. And he's like, like what? And I was like, like an alien lands. What happens if an alien lands? Or what happens if he punches his dad in the face? Or like, like I, I don't care because I just want to break up the ice that he's got forming around this idea because I think some part of his brain is afraid of it and it's got to be fun. It's got to just let it go, let it go be its own thing. You can't keep that thing too close uh, to make it what it feels safe. Writing isn't safe. Like let it go. Of course, by the way, he still has not given me these new versions, but we're Mm going to get to him later. Um, (laughs) We should have him on as a guest. 
We should. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think so. We'd love it. We'd love it. Um, all right. So, but let's go to our guest here who we're so excited. About. So John, we have, we um, have a Facebook page and with our um, podcast and we asked our thousand, 1100 now people over there um, what they wanted to ask you. And they were really great questions as always. So we're going to ask you some questions from our listeners. Um, so, uh, Mitchell Bradford asked, what exercises do you do before building a world? Uh, John is the man excited to listen, by the way. Um, so are there any exercises you do? We want to talk about world building. You're so yeah. amazing at it. You know, what do you do to start this? What is your process? I, I wish I had some sort of systematized plan for going in there so to ask all the smart questions. Um, but generally, something will be exciting to me about this notion, this concept, this character, and what is the most extreme version of the world that this character could, could live in, or the opposite way around. Like, if you had this world, who's the most interesting character to explore that situation? So um, I'm trying to think, just pick a, I'm trying to think to pick a project. Let me talk well, like about- Big so, Fish is such, I, I right. know we've got two huge fans of Big Fish, or three huge fans. Um, so uh, let's talk about that. That's perfect. So Big Fish is based on a novel by Daniel Wallace. But if you read the novel, like almost nothing that you see in the movie, Big Fish exists in the novel. Um, it was really the experience of reading the novel is what sort of became my way into Big Fish. So um, I knew that there is a son who's come home to talk with his dying father and to, um, to have a, a difficult conversation with his dying father. And that the father's stories are huge and elaborate and it's not clear why he's telling these stories. That's all I sort of got going into it. So the world that I needed to, needed to do was to figure out, okay, what does the Edward Bloom, the father's universe look like? What does it feel like? Um, you know, literally what color is the light in that world? Um, how extreme are things? What is the, the nature of the magical realism within this space? And so if there are giants and there are wishes, what are the boundaries of sort of what this feels like? What does a werewolf in that world feel like? Um, and so as I saw these little disparate stories that were clearly in some, some cases based on like the 12 labors of, Her labors of Hercules, I needed to, to group them together in ways that um, could kind of make some narrative sense. So I created the, the circus um, to put a bunch of these stories together. And so like, okay, the circus feels like something that fits in that world and something that doesn't fit in that world. And when I talk with other writers, especially writers who do TV shows, um, there's just a sorting process of like, that's in the world, that's not in the world. And it just it left, right, you just sort of knock things and everything that just sort of comes your way. It's like, oh yeah, that fits, that does not fit, that fits, that doesn't fit. I remember talking with Damon Lindelof when he was doing Lost and he said like, oh, I, I realized at one point that I, I always want to do a time travel story I always wanted to do a, you know, a movie or a TV show that had time travel in it. And I was doing Lost and I was like, oh, that fits within the universe of Lost. And so that's why there's time travel and Lost. You just, you get a sense of what pieces fit together and what the connections could be. Um, where I think people get hung up on world building too much is they start to worry so much about the, the systems and the government and, the, and how the pipes work in the thing without thinking about what will I actually see as a viewer or as a reader? Um, and what will my central character actually get to experience? Because there's no point in like b making these giant maps if your characters are not going to get to walk across those maps. So especially for like the Arlo Finch books, which was 100% pure world building, I tried to be really careful to like not promise destinations that our characters mm -hmm. could never actually see. 
Right, right, right. Um, how do you balance how much of the world to mention explicitly versus reveal through story and character? For example, in sci-fi or fantasy world that differs from what we're used to, how do you prime the reader so they're not lost or confused? And that's from Jason. Yeah, so what Jason's asking, I think it really comes down to expectation, is that whenever you're writing in a genre, um, you get certain things for free. So if I'm writing a Western, I get like, you know, I get cowboys, I get horses, I get revolvers, I get sheriffs, I get so much stuff for free. And that's awesome because it means you don't have to explain how all that stuff works. People just know it going in because of the genre. Um, but if you're making any changes to that genre, you have to be pretty explicit about that early on so people know sort of what to expect. And so all these rules, but these rules are different, great. Or like, you know, in the Twilight books, vampires, but they're, they're sparkly in the sunlight and that's a difference. Um, so that's, you're explaining like what's common and what's different. Um, I think that instinct of like making sure your heroes are the people who are exposing us to the world is so crucial. Even if you have some kind of omniscient narrator the way you can in prose fiction, it doesn't really work or count if your characters aren't interacting with that special nature of the world. And just making sure that it feels like um, if those characters are in portal fiction where they're coming from our real world into that world, that it's clear sort of what that boundary is, or if they were born in that world that uh, we really understand why they see things the way they do. I, I look at uh, Meg, what you did on Inside Out and those, the emotion, the characters feel like they were born in that world and it's natural to them. And you wanna make sure that it feels um, right for them to be fitting in the world the way that they're fitting. Right, right, right. I have a follow-up question um, yeah. to that. How, if, you know, everything is from the main character's point of view or your character's point of view, how soon in a script mm -hmm. or, you know, in the experience of watching a movie, do you feel like you have to lay down those rules? Mm. Yeah. A, a thing I got out of writing the Arlo Finch books is because they're middle grade, which are like Harry Potter age. And um, there's a term for it, which is called limited, like, limited third person or close third person. And it's like you feel you're right behind the shoulder of, the, of that main character. So you still describe them in the third person, but you really have insight to sort of what they know and they see the world from their point of view. So I think if there are um, rules, special things, uh, you know, complications in the world that you need to be explicit with your audience about, you need to be explicit with that lead character pretty quickly. I mean, it may not be that opening sort of set piece, but really soon you have to make it clear, like, this is why things need to work the way they do. There's an experience of watching a movie where you've kind of formed a social contract with your audience, where you say, like, if you give me your uninterrupted you know, attention, I will make the next two hours worthwhile. And that trust, you know, you, you get it kind of for free in the first five minutes, but then you have to really you know, have to sort of sign the contract or else people are not going to really, you know, lock in. Right, right. Um, Ian asked us about actual, and do you have any tips or tricks mm -hmm. when you're actually writing the scene descriptions or the descriptions of the world of how to do that concisely? Um, yeah, it's so challenging because, you know, screenwriting is such an art of economy and you're using the, the fewest possible worlds to, words to sketch out as much as you possibly can. Um, you know, I always say like, try to avoid D&D &D descriptions, which are so literal in terms of like, there's, you know, there's a chalice on a, a podium in the dis 30 feet in the distance. And like, that doesn't do you any good. Um, you're always looking for 
what does it feel like? And so if you can imply other senses through, um, through your descriptions, that's so helpful. So um, if the space is, uh, you know, drippy and wet, like the, like the belly of a whale, that gives you the sense of like sort of the cold and the humidity and sort of all the else. And you can sort of sense what the sound design is gonna be like, um, because you sense like what it would feel like to be in that space. Um, in general, if you can think about, again, what the characters in that world are experiencing, what they're seeing, what they're feeling, that's gonna get you probably closer to the scene description that's actually helpful than sort of something that's designed as instructions for an art director. That's great. I I have to say all this is super useful for me because I'm just starting on a very big world project. So um, I'm super excited to listen to this episode again. <laughs> Personally, <laughs> thank you. Um, um, one thing I'm also, noticing, uh, yeah, just too quickly, John, what I so yeah. appreciate is we always talk about how emotion is the central driver of good writing. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about how to concisely and economically describe these worlds, you're talking about what characters are experiencing and feeling. And like that, I just think that's really important because also as the reader, we want to, for the reader, we want to project that feeling as well. So I feel like that's a great litmus test is if you're feeling stuck, put yourself in the shoes of your character and allow them to see the world. And then you can see it too, emotionally, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think so often in screenwriting, we're only thinking about sort of the camera's point of view, and that's not really the emotional point of view of, of the story. Um, what can also be really helpful is to zoom in and zoom out. And so, um, we have this weird habit in screenwriting of sort of staying in a, a master shot. And really, in real life, you would get in really close on some things. And so think about what it would look like really up close and like what fingertips are doing in the scene. And then if you need to zoom all the way back out, do that as well. Um, something I was writing yesterday, well, I, was, I was doing a yoga class on Peloton and the music at the end, I was thinking like, wow, that's actually kind of exactly what I need. And it was sort of this, this low drone that like, it never, it sounded like it was getting louder, but it never really got louder. And it was exactly what I kind of needed for this one moment. I have this really long scene where there's a change that happens in it. And like, I don't call out music cues very often, but I did call it out for this because it was clearly speaking to the emotional change happening in this character and his decision to sort of reveal a thing. And so, um, really thinking about how all the senses would be present in those scenes can really help you there. That's great. That's great. Um, is there anything else in terms of a satisfying world that you kind of hold in your head or just innately know you need to um, make sure is in the script in terms of world building? Like this is a satisfying world. I want to be in it. Well, that sense that like the world existed yesterday and it'll exist tomorrow, that it's not just there, you know, while we're seeing only what the character is seeing, the sense that like it exists beyond the edges of, of the frame. And um, it's, again, you sort of know it when you know it, but when you, when you feel like uh, it's just convenient that all these things are, are here in a certain way, that's where it gets to be a little bit frustrating. Like you sense you couldn't walk off with one of those other characters. Um, and, and maybe characters are a way to really think about it is that if it feels like all the characters we're meeting are there only to service our central character's journey that they are, they're gonna stop everything and deal with this, deal with a hero in, in their way. I don't really believe it. In, in real life, most characters aren't gonna be interested in the hero and there's gonna be, what is ordinary life gonna be like for those people? Having a sense of what that is, is really important. Even if we don't get to see it, it can inform the choices they're making in the scenes. 
You talked earlier about deciding the rules, like you have a genre like a Western and then this mm. rule is in, this rule is, rule is out. How, what is the process of creating those new rules or, or adjusting those rules? And as a second part of that, when you're writing it and you realize this rule doesn't work, mm-hmm. what is that process? Yeah, hopefully you're hitting that pretty early on. You're, you're figuring out sort of like, okay, these are the kinds of things I'm going to need to be able to do in this story. And if I can't do that, that's going to be a problem. Um, but honestly, in most of the stuff I've written, you know, I, you know, again, I'm thinking back to the Arlo Finch books because there's three of them and uh, there's stuff that happens in book two and book three and things that are possible in those books that I had not anticipated when I sat down to write book one. Um, and yet the universe was um, defined enough that I, I could really know what was possible and what was not going to feel like it could exist in the world of those books. And that worked. Uh, probably an uh, example that everyone would be more familiar with is Charlie's Angels. And so I did the, the first two Charlie's Angels movies. And when I sat down originally um, to meet on those, on doing that project, I was sitting on a couch with Drew Barrymore and across from Amy Pascal and we just were talking about what they felt like. And I talked about how, to me, Charlie's Angels felt like your annoying kid sister who somehow wins the Olympics um, and that you love her so much, but she also kind of drives you crazy. And that I saw the comedy being that these are women who are so good and so professional when they were on the clock, but just giant dorks when they were off the clock because cool people are not funny and dorks are funny. And so uh, we really just talked about the tone of what it felt like to be in that world. And plot came out of that. Um, and when we met with McGee to direct the movie, what got him the job was uh, he shot this little demo thing and just like what the world looked like. And it wasn't an action sequence. It was um, a PA sitting in this convertible um, with the wind blowing and it just felt right. It felt like Southern California sunshine. And so once we knew what that was, we could do everything else. And that really is world building, that's emotional world building. What's interesting about your, what you're saying too, and I think people don't think about this, is that you're always world building. Even mm-hmm. if it's not a quote unquote new world or fantasy world or sci-fi world, you're always world building your main character's world because yeah. everybody sees it differently, experiences it differently. One main character, Southern California is very different than this, you know, than Charlie's mm-hmm. Angels, right? That that it, all everything John's talking about applies also to everything. Yeah, the the new movie Minari, which I thought was just great, is a lot of world building. So it's it's a a specific Arkansas summer green thing, and it's the choice of what you're seeing, but also what you're not showing. There's like a lot of other stuff you know, you could have shown in that movie, and you're not. You're showing just this family, just this farm, and that's what world building is. It's it's that careful editing process of picking what we're going to see and what we're not going to see as, as a mirror of the main character's interior, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's how he saw it at that age, right? If he went back there as an adult, I don't know that that's what he'd see, right? So giving you that child's uh, experience of it. Um, Jeff, you had a wonderful question. Let's ask you, I think that's a really good segue to your question. Yeah. Well, it's related to all this. I mean, we talked about concision and economy, right? Like that's the backbone of good screenwriting, especially so much of that I've learned from you and, you know, blogs and your show, Um, But I feel like inevitable in world building is, let me back up a little bit. 
not only considering an economy, but not being a director as we write, you know, like mm -hmm. our job as a screenwriter is to provide the blueprint for the director to really run. But I think about a movie like Big Fish and I feel like that writing is inherently directorial, right? Like mm -hmm. I feel like so much of the flavor and the voice of that movie feels like decisions a director might be making. Mm -hmm. So how do we as a writer maintain concision and economy and not over direct our writing, but still create something vivid that, you know, feels like we're giving still authorship and authority to a director, but creating what we need to create to relay the experience of that narrative. Well, I think maybe the reason why it feels directed is that um, I am directing every scene in my head. And so I, I do, I do see the finished scene in my head and it's not exactly the finished scene that's in the movie, but like I can, before I've really started writing those things, I'm I'm closing my eyes, I'm visualizing, I'm just looping the scene in my head and sort of seeing the blocking, seeing sort of where people are at in space, when they're moving, I'm starting to hear the dialogue. And so I really am seeing the whole thing and hearing the whole thing. And then my screenwriting is just um, the best way I can to capture what it is, that scene that I saw and including sort of how we got into it and how we got out of it. Um, and so it's, you know, there's always this criticism of like directing from the page, which is feels like, you know, calling out too many shots or being overly specific. But like, I feel like you read the scripts and you have a really good sense of like, oh, this is what it's going to feel like. Ideally, um, if someone read a script a year ago, um, they could kind of forget like, well, did I see the movie or did I read the script? It, it, the, the really good ones, it feels like you actually did see the movie. And that's that, very important. That speaks to a, uh... Moira asked, do you use we see in your script? I do use we see. And I, I get so frustrated by people who are pedantic about not using we see or we hear. Uh, to me, I envision the page as being like, I am sitting in a theater watching something on a screen. And so it's the we see, we hear is just like, it's the experience of being in the theater, um, you know, watching this movie is what the script should be. And that feels right to me. It's not a set of instructions, it's a set of experiences. I totally agree. I also use we see. It's funny, there's a whole debate about should you use capitals? And I'm like, well, you have to because uh, executives are lazy and they forget. How, like, I don't know, I use capitals. Like if yeah. I need to, if I need to like, look here, this is happening. I use yeah. underline, I'll use whatever I can to get you to feel it. Yeah, there's an accepted grammar for how screenwriting works, and you can use as much as that as is useful. You don't have, you're not bound to all of it, um, but it's it goes back to like genre expectations to some degree. It's like you know, there's an expected way things are going to work, so use as much of that as is possible to use to sort of convey your vision for what this scene is, for what this movie is, um, and so understanding why those conventions are there so helpful, and then you can choose to ignore them when it's useful to ignore them like some of that stuff too is voice right mm -hmm. like how we are right like if we use bold or capitals or underlines or or not it's it's you as a storyteller mm -hmm. being in the script with the reader um you know i make choices in my scripts too and each one i make slightly different choices depending on what the story is that i yeah. want to tell and how i want to tell it the only rule I have for myself, and this is just because I used to be an executive who had to read, you know, whatever, five scripts on the weekend or whatever. Yeah. So I know what that is, is like, I never anywhere in the script, but especially in the first page, put a giant, huge block of description because they're going to open it and go, Ugh, and then yeah. they're going to close it because it's too visually much for them. And I know maybe we shouldn't worry about that, but I also know it is, they're human beings and like the three line 
uh, description and then chunk it out, it visually helps them and it helps a rhythm of the read. Am I totally wrong, John? You are, you're you're a one. Of course, you're right. You're of course right because you know what your experience is as a person who has to read scripts and that you you are going to be tempted to skip that big block of, of text. And then what? So why did you bother writing that text if people are going to skip it? So so yeah. Do you have exactly. any other? Do you have any other rules? Or, you know, because I know there's lots of discussion, like the Twitter fights that people have about oh. ellipses and dashes and all that stuff. Like, My opinion of that is you should go write. You've got too much time on your head. Yeah. You're freaking <laughs> arguing about that. Please go write something. But I yeah. love it. I, so I think, I, I think I'm pretty consistent, but all I would ask for people is just to make a choice. And, and if you're kind of consistent about it, it's great. And so like uh, my, I, in general, if someone is being cut off um, I will double dash for dialogue. If someone is just trailing off all ellipses, but like, I'm sure you could look through my old scripts and I, I've done it multiple ways in different times. It doesn't matter. As long as the intention is clear, people also get hung up at like, oh, is that really OS or should that be VO? It's like, it doesn't matter. We understand what's happening here. Like, do you really need that continued? It's fine. It's, it's all going to make sense. It does not matter. John, we have hard-hitting questions on this podcast about yeah. ellipses. So <laughs> that was not an, an audience question, by the way. That was my question. So we're uh, not you know, but people want to know. People want to know the bus. Um, another question we had from David is: Does the budget of world building ever relate to the development phase of the script? Do you ever worry about it? So yes, um, and the very specific example I can give, I can't name what the project is, but there's a thing that I'm trying to do uh, that's really ambitious for a broadcast network. And it's not the Mandalorian level of scale, but like we basically have to invent some new kind of technology technique to do it. And uh, it's a real question of whether it's going to be possible financially to do it for the, the scale that we need to do. And so I ended up writing these sort of two test sequences to, to try to let's shoot these and see if we can get a look that we want because if we can't, there's sort of no point to it. And that's really a case of like the world building is going to be clearly so involved and expensive that we just have to figure out from the start, whether it's going to be possible because I don't want to do the movie if we are doing it just on tiny little sound stages and, right. and it's not worth my time. It's not worth everyone's um involvement and investment so yeah and so, sometimes yeah. you don't even yeah. know that the math doesn't work like I worked on a project as a producer that was a period circus movie mm -hmm. but the lead was a hairy guy a guy with hair on his face and he yeah. was only and he couldn't no sorry the lead was a um 16 year old girl mm -hmm. so there is no star that at the time who was 16 who could pull off the funding you needed to do a period circus movie, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And you're not going to do a circus movie cheap in, in like, in like, in, you have to do wide shots, right? And it's period. And literally as a producer, it just became like, this is an amazing script and the math right now doesn't work. Like it yeah. just doesn't work. Yeah. Um, and so I feel and like so happen. often, uh, I think we don't talk enough about is that as a screenwriter, you kind of are a stock picker and you're trying to figure out like, is this an idea that is worth spending a year of my life on to try to do and will it actually become a movie? Will it become a TV show? Or will other factors get in the way? Because I, I want to write the movies that actually get made. Like I, I, I want to write movies I, I want to write, but also I want them to exist and, and be made in the world. And I think for emerging writers, my advice is always write what you're burning to write, because it probably, it may not get made, mm -hmm. right? 
but it will be a great calling card for you because your passion will be in there and it will lead you to other jobs. And then once you're an established screenwriter, that stock trade of like, where am I going to put my life energy? You only have so many projects in a lifetime. So, you know, I remember once I got passed on by doing a dog movie and my friend was like, did you really want to do a dog movie? And I was like, yeah, no, I didn't. She's like, well, congratulations. No, oh, yeah. <laughs> congratulations. You don't, You're you, free. You, yeah. you don't have to do that dog movie. Um, so I just, it's, it's like this bounty. It's also where you are in your career, right. In mm-hmm. terms of, um, but I, you know, I, I, I agree. There is a definite time where you're thinking, you know, can we get this made? Um, and, and what the, what the reasons that you're going to write it, um, yeah. So I, I often give very similar advice with one slight wording change is I always say, write the movie you would, you wish you could see um, mm-hmm. rather than the one you want to write. Because I think sometimes people aren't honest with themselves about the one I want to write. It's like, no, which one would you actually see? Because I think that's the one that you're going to be most driven to actually finish and, and really work on because it also forces you to be honest about your taste. So it's like, maybe you, you love like, two character indie dramas, that's the one you should write because you'll, you'll do a kick-ass job. But if you love the big giant science fiction movies and you feel like, oh, I, I shouldn't write that for myself because uh, who would dare, it's too ambitious. Yeah, just be ambitious. Write that thing you really want to see out there in the world. Yeah, be ambitious. I love that. Please be ambitious. Go for it. I see um, um, conversations on the Facebook group about this, about I'm a new writer and I really want to write this period, you know, limited series thing. And then the feedback is, well, you're a new writer. No one's going to give you a hundred million dollars. And so it's probably true, but setting as a sample, as a pitch, people getting to know you and your taste, like you're saying, like, go for it. Yeah. Stop asking permission. That, that, that I implied in that is this sense of like, I'm not allowed to write that thing, or I'm not like, I'm not at a level where I could be writing that thing. Yeah, you can write whatever you want. That's the, the great luxury of being a writer is that no one can stand in your way from writing that thing. In terms of thinking about how to position yourself out there in the world, you can be smart about, you know, what can I write that identifies me as a writer in a way that's helpful and meaningful? And so like, if you come from a background that is unique, I think there's a good case we made for like writing something that sort of showcases your unique background and your unique experience, because that will really help you as you're trying to staff on a TV show or as, as people are reading your sample, because they can match like, oh, she wrote this script and she's also from this place. And I, I, I sort of get it. I can sort of get a package on that. And if that's appealing to your right, absolutely write that. But don't feel like that's the only thing that you're allowed to write. That's yes. so true. I mean, there is the other side of it too, which is, you know, represent, there's always a, how I get representation. Well, you're going to get it because of your voice and you wrote the thing that I call passion. You know, you call the thing you want to see, be ambitious. That is going to get you noticed. Mm-hmm. And then know that those reps have to know what widget you are. Like they, like, in other words, if you have an opera, an animated movie, and a thriller, that's really hard for them to know mm-hmm. how to sell you. What are they selling? Right. So there is also, as you get, as you start to write, because the other thing is emerging writers think they're going to write like one script, two scripts. No, you're going to write a lot. Like you've got to write many, many drafts and try a lot of different things. So of those 10 scripts you're going to write, right? Like let's get real to find the three that rise up and are great. Also think about, you found a sci-fi niche. You're an older female sci-fi writer from this culture. Suddenly it's actually able to sell you. And in sci-fi, you're really good at set pieces. You're really good at world building. 
right? Or you're really good at finding emotion within the sci-fi, blah, blah, blah. So there, whatever, but I guess what I'm trying to say is the more you go towards who you are, like what you're saying, John, it actually helps the agents then know how to sell you. Yeah. I mean, my first produced movie was Go. And that, you know, was the movie I most wanted to see. And it's a large part of why I wrote it. And what was helpful about it is that like, it could, you could, depending how you squinted at it, you could look at it as like, oh, this guy can write an action movie, this guy can write a comedy. It was useful because it could show multiple things and you know help get me into rooms. So even if it hadn't gotten made, it would have gotten me work. As a quick also, anecdote ahead, just related go. to this, uh, there's a great Netflix show, I don't know if you've seen it, called Teenage Bounty Hunters. Mm-hmm. And um, it's great. The way that show got greenlit was Kathleen Jordan's manager said, Write the script you expect would never get made, but is the perfect expression of your voice. And mm-hmm. then it got made. Jenji Cohan read it and was like, let's take this to Netflix and make it. Um, so she was smartly advised by her manager, write the thing that's most distinctly yours that you assume will never get made. And then it did. I think that's yep. really very that's interesting. A, that's smart advice. Yeah. Yeah, it was the same with me. And I, you know, I wrote, I, I just was dying to write this pilot about a guy who keeps a girl in a box under his bed. And no, everybody's afraid to make this show, but it got me Captain Marvel because they were like, I didn't know what was going to happen. Like, so it, you just, you don't know where this is going to, where these things are going to go uh, when you write them. So we also always get questions about process in terms of um, like, do you have a favorite time of day that you write? You, you know, you mentioned you write, you, you go by word count sometimes. Do you have a routine? Um, and this is from Annabella. You know, I would say, as an emerging writer, I was writing kind of whenever I could write. And I ended up writing all night sometimes. And I just the luxury of your early 20s is just like you have very little responsibilities. And so you can just write all the time. And you can just spend Friday night inside and write and, and get stuff done. Um, as you have a family and you have more responsibilities, you tend to need to curtail your writing to set time so you don't, you're not so disruptive to all family life. I try to get in a good hour of writing in the morning and then an hour in the afternoon. If I do that, then I get enough done. If I don't do that, then I get behind. Um, but it's, I try to block off an hour at a time. People who follow me on Twitter will see, sometimes I'll say, starting a right sprint at the top of the hour. It's a thing I stole from Jane Espenson, um, which is basically, it's this sort of social pressure thing of just like, for the next hour, I'm not gonna check Twitter, I'm not gonna do anything else, I'm just going to write. And um, feeling that other people are, are there writing with you can be helpful as well. So I know people who will just like, get on a FaceTime call with another writer and they, they won't talk, but they will just sit there writing and sort of holding each other accountable. And so oh, I love that. I've not, I've not heard of this right yeah. sprint or I think that's amazing. Yeah. So yeah. I think anything you can do that sort of makes you feel not so isolated in your writing that makes you feel like it's an accomplishment you have written um, is, is great. There've been times where I've had to use the stick rather than the carrot. I remember there was one point where I just got just incredibly unproductive and, despondent on, on a project. And so I said that if I didn't write at least five pages that day, I was going to make a donation to some hateful charity. Um, and so <clears throat> I, I found a way you could like anonymously donate to, to hateful charities. And so uh, uh, most days I was able to get those pages, pages done. And so on the few times where I did actually have to make that donation to the hateful charity, I would also make a matching donation to like a, a, a good charity to offset it. Like it's like a carbon <laughs> offset. Um, but you know, sometimes you gotta, you know, find the ways just to get the work done. Yeah, I'm a panic writer. That's my best days. It's like, oh my god, it's due, and they're waiting, and I, I wasted so much time, and then I, I, I write. What do you? What is something you just talked about that, like having a struggling? What 
What is that like for you when you're in the struggle? We talk a lot about that on this show, like the realities of being in that dark place. Yeah, emerging yeah. writers and even pro writers sometimes think, well, they're, the, the, the real writers or the big writers, they don't struggle. They don't have doubt. They just know how to do it. And I and yeah. I just feel like we, we need to expose that a little. Yeah, I also want to just expose the the cliches of writer's block and sort of how, like, it's so weird that like there's so many depictions of writer's block on screen and I've not found anything to be especially true. And they're always sort of like, you know, that ripping paper out of the, the, the typewriter and crumpling it and throwing it into the thing. Like that's not generally what writer's block feels like to me. It's, um, I'm not even sure I have writer's block that should be fit that way. It's just like, I just don't really want to write. I just like, I'd rather do almost anything other than write. And we never talk about like, you know, weaver's block or potter's block or blacksmith's block. It's like, it sometimes it just sucks to do this job, but so you just have to do this job. And um, I think because what we do is so open-ended. It doesn't feel like the same thing. Um, and sometimes it's not even clear like what the next thing is we need to do. So one thing I will try to do is uh, if I'm really struggling on a scene, I'll just just map out sort of like, here's some things that need to happen in the scene. Like here's, the, here's some of the basics and I'll start writing one little piece of it and just like sort of back my way into it uh, rather than just sort of starting at the top to, to the bottom. Just like find some little thing you can do just because you know, getting a hundred words written is better than zero words written. I do the same. Like if, there are days I just don't want to write and I, maybe I'm mad. I'm even mad at the story. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's like I can't figure it out and I hate it. And why did I start this? And this is too hard and shit. And I will literally just be like, open a document and title it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now we're in, we're starting to step our foot in the water and just, okay, now you have a document open and now put this in and write this scene. I totally think that helps your brain literally walk into the water and mm -hmm. occasionally even on those days you can start to flow that's what's crazy even yeah. on the days you're you you are mad at it you're uninspired sometimes there's something sitting right under that like there's a reason you want to go do something else because mm -hmm. there is something emotional bubbling that's pushing up and you've got to give it a chance just by right opening a document to do it so i totally think that the the micro in mm -hmm. so if do you now I'm going to ask because of more myself in terms of where I am on my project. If you have get, gotten a note and you're like, I totally, I totally agree with this note. Like there's no, you know, none of that, like, fuck you stuff has happened. Yeah. You're like, no, that's totally right. You, you put your finger on the loose tooth in this is what I call it. Right. Like it's a loose tooth. I was kind of faking it, hoping it worked, <laughs> but it's loose. Um, but I don't know how to fix it. Like I yeah. literally, part of me is literally like, but I, I agree, but I don't know how to fix it. And part of me is just like, I guess I just have to take walks. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wish I had a, a systemic approach to dealing with it because I, my experience is when I've actually found the solution, it, it wasn't from concentrated hard work sitting at a desk trying to pound it out. It's, it's been sort of like randomly, like I was about to fall asleep and I was like, oh, that's the way to do it. Um, and somehow I, the, the pressure got taken, either more pressure got applied or pressure got taken off. And it's like, oh, I see how to do that. Um, you ever do like a, like yeah. all the bad ideas? Like I've got a hundred bad ideas of how to fix it, but I feel like maybe I have to get through those to get to it or. I, I think that's a smart technique to try because in, in labeling it, like these are all terrible ideas and labeling them as terrible ideas, you can see why they're terrible, but they might point you to like, okay, that's awful, but there's something promising about this. A lot of times it's not, 
you know, the way to get to that idea is really just, it's, it's a transition. It's a, it's a spin to get you into that place is the really hard thing. Like, you know, it's the right thing. You just don't know quite how to get it started or how to get it placed in there. And you find a way to do that. What I was describing earlier about this music here that I wanted to use, um, I was really having a hard time like getting the scene to work properly and to feel like it fit into this movie until I was like, oh, okay, that's the shift I need. That's the, the permission I, I, I'm going to give this scene to just do a very different thing and, 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 and sort of take up space. Um, you talk about, you know, sometimes people feel like they're in an environment and they don't have permission to be in an environment or to sort of like, occupy attention and sometimes you need that idea and the the sequence or the scene to really say like no no you have to pay attention to me like this i i'm, I'm worthy of being you know here and, and being um the focus of you know of people's interaction for a moment that's do, really important do you have uh like a writer friend or a group when you're churning on something and need help with that like some people work better you know just doing it themselves and i work better when i text meg all day and make her help me <laughs> hammer down into something do you I have ha i have no writer group like that and i've always been envious of people who had that and had that trust um, with others about that kind of thing and it's honestly been my female writer friends who've been much better at being able to do that kind of stuff. Um, and I get so envious because like, they'll say like, oh, I was really struggling on this. So my friend came over and uh, we made me some dinner and then we, she just took a crack at the scene and, and we got it to work. I'm like, what? Like you like a friend of yours like helped write this thing. And it's like, <laughs> like, how does that happen? And there've been a couple of times where I've really had to sort of pull the alarm bell and, uh, and invite some folks in. There was a moment on the Big Fish musical where the producers wanted like five alt jokes for every joke that was in the, the musical. And, uh, and we're really kind of being dicks about it, but it was, it was at a pressure point. And I could, I could see, I could both see the point where like they needed alts to try on stage, but I was exhausted. And so I just, I reached out to my writer friends like, I know this is a time to ask, but like, can you just come up with alts for me? And we just could just, just bang it out. And, like half of one of those made it into the show ultimately, but like it was great to have someone else's big brain working on it for a sec. I sometimes, have, just, go ahead. Sorry, go I, ahead. sometimes I sometimes describe it as like uh, talking with another writer about your thing. It's like um, moving in Los Angeles, uh, especially like when you're a new person in Los Angeles, sometimes you just need somebody with a pickup truck who can actually just like help you haul your stuff or help you like figure out, like take your couch out of the, the room and stick it someplace so that you can like rearrange it. And so sometimes that extra writer friend is just that that friend with a, a pickup truck to help you move your stuff around. I, love I that. also sometimes do use the, it depends on the person, of course, but I think producers can be yeah. very good at this. Some are not because it freaks them out and scares them that you don't know. So you really have to be sure of who you're doing it with and that you have to test out do you want to be involved in this process? Because mm -hmm. like in this early first draft stage in terms of, okay, the meal's on the table and I understand there's too much on the table and we've lost a bunch of stuff, but there's a big choices being made right now. Mm -hmm. And let's make those choices together, especially if it's a job for a studio because they want to be part of it. Do you allow people, producers into that? It depends on the, on the project. So on Big Fish, I've talked about often is that, um, so Will is sitting at Edward's bedside and tells the story of, of how Edward goes and tells it to him. And that's the whole river sequence and all that. And that's how uh, Edward dies. And I had it basically that exact sequence, but like Will told it to the funeral rather than telling it to Edward at the bedside. And the producer said like, 
what if just a crazy idea, like what if he told it to, it's like, well, obviously that's the right idea. And like, we could talk in the room and figure out sort of what that was like. Where I do find producers really helpful sometimes is early on in the process when I'm sort of sketching out, like, I think the movie is this way. So I'm, I'm talking through a general outline. It's like, we could do this, we could do this, we could do this. I can sort of get their feedback on like, does this all track like the kinds of movie you want to see? And so in the, I can also do that for a rewrite is like, they may have come with notes and then I may come back and then say like, here's what I'm thinking about doing um, to do this stuff, but help me figure out if like, this is the way that, is this the way to implement the note that you think actually would address your concerns? Because generally I'm not gonna do what they told me to do. I'm gonna try to hear the note behind the note and figure out what the actual not shitty solution is to that problem. How do you do that? How do you find the note under the note? Like what's your process with that? Um, is trying to figure out where they got off the train. Um, sort of because generally if they're noticing a problem on page 75, they started to lose interest or started to lose faith, you know, pages ahead of that. And so at what point did they, did we, did something just not work for them? Because they're probably having a hard time identifying the source of the pain, but they're feeling a pain and you were at the doctor trying to figure out like why they're feeling that pain and what it is about their read that is not matching what you were hoping for in their read. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's, it's probing, asking questions, uh, figuring out sort of where they were at with the characters along the way, where they thought the movie was headed and what it is. And sometimes you find out that like, they're giving you a note that's not really about the story at all, but it's about some of one of their own fears or something else that is going on in their, you know, their professional lives or a fear about like another movie and you deal with that as best you can. Yeah, that, yeah those fear notes are tricky. Those yeah. are the mm -hmm. hard ones to deal with. To me, much yeah. harder than the story notes because oh, yeah. it's hard to turn over a fear note. You're like, well, I don't, I once got a note on a on a on a show that Lauren and I had set up uh, in a pilot where they were like, "Well, the neighbor character, who by the way was like a C level D level character, she can't uh, be fifty. You got to make her younger." And we were like, "Oh, well, why?" And they were like, "Well, because last season the head of the network called one of the proposed shows menopausal, so." We don't want any 50 year old women. Uh -huh. And I literally was driving and had to turn, had to pull my car over. And I was like, wait a minute. First of all, who do you think is watching network TV? And I just was like, I couldn't help it. I mean, you should yeah. not generally do that. But I was like, what are you, what is this note? And then you made the character 25 because you wanted to, because <laughs> why have that fight on this show? Yeah. I, right. Why, what is, why am I fighting for the D level neighbor character? Like mm -hmm. then you get into those, into those uh, things that you have to weigh back and forth. Yeah. I would love to know, John, just you've got such an impressive filmography. And when you think about your work as it stands now, is there like a particular film or even a particular scene that you would love to be remembered by that you feel is like kind of the hallmark of you as a writer? And I'd love to hear why you feel that way. Um, I, if it's a single scene or sequence, then it would probably be the deathbed scene in Big Fish because that was, uh, I think it works really well. It doesn't, you know, it's not exactly the picture I had in my head. Like, like literally the telephone is on the wrong side of the bed for my taste, but um, it, it, the match between sort of like how I wrote that scene, which was um, I would sit in front of a mirror and bring myself to tears and then write the scene. And it was just so incredibly method to sort of, that's how I got it. And, it's a, a, and people's experience reading the scene was like crying and people's experience watching the scene is crying. It's just, it's, uh, you know, 
I was trying to make something that was like profoundly joyful and sad at the same time. And uh, I'm just so happy it worked. And so that'd be, if there's just one scene, it would be that one. I love all of your movies, but that is the correct answer. Just say. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I love I, that. What, what makes you mad about being a screenwriter? What is the uh, thing that, you know, makes you want to be mad, punch, kick, scream? I mean, that's how I express anger. Yeah. That may not be how you express anger. <laughs> you know, I would say a frustration I I definitely feel after 20 years in the business is that there's never never has it been more clear that the that creators are responsible for driving the success of the industry. And you especially see that in television, but really in film as well. You see sort of like what has been happening with um, our great achievements in movies and they, they are so creator driven and to not acknowledge that screenwriters are that first creator on these, these projects um, and that we should be paying a lot more attention to sort of their instincts and their passions for driving these projects um, instead of making fear-based decisions and uh, deferring to directors or other folks who are just business people. Um, so I think that's probably the thing that makes that angers me most. It's not just that screenwriters aren't acknowledged, but they, they aren't sort of, you know, prized in that process. That is also the correct answer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just feel so good. I feel like, you know, I'm acing 100%. my Here's the last one. What brings you incredible joy about being a writer? Um, having written something that you just kind of know works um, because there is sometimes screenwriting is just like problem solving and, and puzzle, you know, like how did I get these pieces to work? It's like, oh my God, they work really well. And when they work on the page and you see the scenes like, oh, that works in the scene and you see it in the final movie. That's just, that's just a joy uh, when you see that experience, you know, paying off. John, thank you so much for being oh, pleasure. a guest. It was a real honor. Um, and John, I'm 90% sure that every one of our listeners already listens to Script Notes, but we'll make sure to promote it and cool. you know, direct anyone over there just because it's awesome. a great companion resource to what we oh, do. Oh, for so. sure. Just really appreciate you being here. And to all of our listeners, um, please you know drop a review on Apple Podcasts and go to our Facebook page and go to thescreenwritinglife at gmail.com, ask us a question because we're here to help. Remember, you are not alone and keep writing. Thanks for tuning in to The Screenwriting Life. We love our community and we want to get to know you even better. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash thescreenwritinglife or email us at thescreenwritinglife at gmail.com to have your question considered for the show. You can also suggest topics by emailing us there. Also, we'd love for you to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. Even if we don't read your review on air, trust me, we have read it, and not only does it mean the world to us, but it helps other people find the show. We've always been driven by mission and mentorship, and reviewing our show helps expand that mission. And of course, until next Sunday, happy writing.